Father, we're grateful for your word. Um, Lord, we're grateful that we are not dependent on technology to worship you. Uh, Lord, we could um, be in the middle of a field with nothing around us and we can still worship. And so uh, thank you for this momentary break, unintended, but uh, Lord, under your sovereignty. And I pray that our worship service would not be uh, any worse uh, for technology misbehaving. And uh, Lord, to that end, we pray that you'd be with us now as we turn to your word, as we uh, want to hear what you have to say to us. Uh, help us to see and to understand by the power of your spirit. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen. So um, last week we did the kind of introduction to the book of Exodus and just kind of barely, barely scratched on the story that we're looking at now. Um, actually, chapters one and, and two go together really well, but I just kind of broke it off where I did. So just a reminder, uh, the way the book of Exodus starts is it begins with the Hebrew word and. It, it, it ties it. It's reminding us. Moses is saying this is just the continuation from Exodus. So what Exodus was about was teaching us who our God is. He's not like the Egyptian gods. He's not like the gods of uh, the Canaanites. He is the God of heaven and earth. He made all of that. And he teaches us who we are. We are not slaves. Uh, we may have been in captivity for a while, but we've been set free. And so where the book of Exodus, or Genesis ended was with uh, Israel going into Egypt as guests, celebrated guests. Pharaoh said, you settle anywhere you want in the land. And where that left us hanging was with the question, well, then how did they wind up as slaves? And so Moses is beginning to answer that. That's why Exodus begins with the word and. He's picking it right back up and he's saying, and this is the next part of that story. So what we saw last week was the king of Egypt uh, became afraid of the Hebrews. There were too many of them. They were multiplying. And so he was afraid of them. And so he tried to, to suppress them. He, he said, I'm going to put them in slavery. I'm going to oppress them. And then that way they won't breed as much. They won't, they won't grow as many. Um, and that didn't work. It, it just failed. And I don't know if you remember last week I said, uh, round one of God versus Pharaoh. God takes it. God wins. And so what we're going to see today is round two and three. And guess what? Um, spoiler, God wins again. <laughs> But the way he gets there is really instructive because what God does with his people is he led Israel into Egypt. That, that was part of his plan. That was his covenant with Abraham. He said, you're going to go to a land that is not your own. You're going to serve people for 400 years until the sin of the Amorites is finished, and then I'll lead you out. So this is not like God is saying, oh my gosh, I forgot those poor Hebrews there. Let me go rescue them. This is something that he's been planning and working on all along. And the way he rescues them, what we're going to see today is the way he rescues them, the way he delivers them is right in the face of earthly powers. He doesn't transport them out to some other land and go, okay, now everything's good. I'll, I'll just hide you out here. He does his work in the face of earthly powers. He says, nothing can oppose me. I will have my way. And so we see Pharaoh be as, as pharaonic as he possibly can and still lose because God is going to win. This is, this is his point. So the, there's really just two stories that we're going to cover. And one of the things that's frustrating about this is Moses at this point is telling the story so fast, he just leaves out tons of details. He just sails right over this stuff because he's trying to get to the Exodus. So like we get, all right, Moses is born and that's nice. Um, if you look at the next week's verse, uh, what it says is, okay, and when he was grown, it just kind of, poop, all of a sudden he's an adult. 
So Moses is, is, is moving through this stuff really fast, getting us to the Exodus, but we've got to get this first because we've got to understand why they're in slavery. And so that's what's going to happen. Two stories, one involving midwives and then one in, involving um, the Nile. So that, that's where this, the thing goes. Here's how it starts. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, okay, so my idea of oppression and slavery didn't work. I don't, I'm, I'm worried about the numbers of the Hebrews. That didn't work, so let me go to the midwives. Maybe we can cut this, this problem off at its root. When the children are born, we'll deal with that. Um, he goes to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Sephira and the other one Pura. There's only two? For a nation this big? Remember when they leave, it's 600,000 men plus women and children, and they only have two midwives? Well, there's a, a couple of different theories on what's going on here. This may be the two who exemplify the midwives. This might be the two that they just call attention to. Um, and so these are the only ones mentioned. There must have been more. Another theory was this would be like the attending nurses. These would be the head nurses. And these would be the leaders of the midwives. And so these two get named because they represent them. Um, Moses doesn't give us the details. All he tells us is two people. <laughs> you know, so theorize what you will. These are the two we're dealing with. There must have been more. Otherwise, uh, there's no way they could, they could service the whole nation. So he goes to the midwives. He talks to the midwives and he says, here's what you're going to do. If you see a woman having a baby and you detect that it's a boy, I want you to kill it. If it's a girl, you can let him live. That's not a problem. But if it's a boy, I want you to kill it. And so... If you want a nation to not thrive, if you want to curb the um, reproduction of the nation, um, it's actually a wrong idea to go to the men, to, to kill the men. So I'm going to speak in very general terms because they're mixed company, but with women, women can only reproduce once a month. There's only one chance a month for them to get pregnant. Men, hey, anytime, you know. So women are very precious. They're very rare that they can reproduce, but men can just any old time they want to. It's not a big deal. So if you go and you kill the men, well, there's probably two or three other guys that can step in and fill that role, and it's not a problem. But if you kill a woman, now the reproduction rate's going to fall because she can only reproduce every, uh, once every month. So is Pharaoh this stupid that he just doesn't understand the dynamics of population growth? Maybe. I don't know. I, I kind of doubt it. I think what he's looking at is if you look back at last week when he first announced that he was afraid of the Hebrews, what he said was um, there are too many and they're too mighty for us. There's, there's too many of them. So if you look at this and you go, well, if he's trying to control the population, he's hitting the wrong side of that equation. But listen to what he continues to say. He says, what happens if, they, if war breaks out and they join our enemies and they fight against us? So what he's actually worried about with the Hebrew population growing is they could form an army and fight against us. Now here's another matter of biology, though it's widely contested these days, men tend to be stronger than women. Men tend to have uh, better upper body strength. Men tend to be able to lay down muscle more rapidly than women. Men tend to be larger than women, way more than women. Um, tend to. Does that mean that I can never find a woman who could beat me in arm wrestling? No, it, we're talking tendencies. If you look at the groups and you say this is kind of what it's like. So in modern warfare, we could put a female in a tank and she could be just as deadly as a male in a tank, right? Kind of evens it out. You don't need physical strength or, or size. As a matter of fact, it might make more sense to put a female in a tank because she'd be smaller. They, women tend to be smaller. 
Not all women are small. Watch women's NBA. <laughs> but women tend to be smaller, so maybe it makes sense like that. In Bronze Age, to be a mighty, uh, a mighty army, to have a force, you had to have somebody with tremendous upper body strength because they had to be able to hold a shield and wield a spear or, or a, um, a sword. And not only did they have to be able to wield it, they had to be able to overcome the other guy and thrust hard enough to run him through. So in Bronze Age, the idea that women are created equal is true, but that doesn't mean that they're equally fit for battle. It makes more sense for men to be in battle because the natural tendency for men to do this. Doesn't mean there aren't exceptions, but it does mean that's what's going on. So what Pharaoh says when he tells the midwives, kill the boys, is he's saying, make sure they don't form an army. I don't want them to rise up against me. Um, it also kind of hampers his first plan, didn't it? He's looking for slaves. He's looking for people to build uh, Ramses and Sukkoth. He's looking to have two cities built. Well, men tend to have better upper body strength. Men tend to be stronger than women. So now he's reducing his workforce. I guess he's looking at the equation and going, yeah, I think in, on balance, I don't want a bunch of strong guys that I've just put into slavery. Go ahead and kill them. So that's what he commands the Hebrew uh, midwives. When you get there, break the, break the baby's neck. Doesn't that sound just barbaric? Doesn't that sound terrible? It wasn't in those days. As a matter of fact, we'll see that in the second, in, in the second story. The, the idea that we have of the preciousness of human life is something that's fairly new. So when we get to the story of throwing children into the Nile, but let's discuss it then, but this seems horrible, and it should. This is, this is actually terrible. So what the, the Hebrew women do is, the midwives, it says, they feared God and did not do what Pharaoh had said. They feared God. They went, God, it would be wrong for us to do this. It would be horrible if we were to do these things. They feared God, and so they disobeyed Pharaoh. Where did they get the idea that it is wrong to kill children? Uh, dumb question. How can you even ask that question? Um, where does this come from? Don't forget where this story is, the, the, telling, the story that Moses is telling us right now. Don't forget where this is in redemptive history. We haven't got to Mount Sinai and the, the uh, Ten Commandments yet. We haven't got the law saying, thou shalt not kill. What we do have, if we go back in the story now, this, this hasn't been written, but it has occurred, is Noah. Do you remember Noah's story? Noah was told, if somebody kills a person, by that person, that person will be killed. Now, do these two ladies know the story of Noah? Moses hasn't written it yet. Moses may not have even been born yet. So these two ladies may not be totally aware of the story of Noah because Moses hadn't written it. So how do they know that it's wrong to murder? How does anybody know it's wrong to murder? Read Romans chapter 3. That's a good answer. Read Romans is usually a pretty good answer. Romans chapter 3, Paul is talking about everybody, everybody being under sin. Jew and Gentile, all of them have, are, are under sin. Everybody has sinned. Everybody has fallen short. But he asked the question, so if the Gentiles didn't have the law, how are they guilty? And his answer is, well, their hearts alternately defend or accuse them. They know that it's wrong to do some of these things they do, and so sometimes they, they, they accuse themselves and sometimes they defend themselves, saying, hey, I, I did the right thing. Why is that? And Moses says, this shows the law written on their heart. So if you were to survey religion in general, different religions, and ask, is it wrong to murder? 
almost all of them are going to say, yeah, it's wrong to murder. And one of the accusations that Christopher Hitchens, the, the atheist um, newspaper reporter, had against Christianity is none of these rules are new. This is nothing. It, Jesus isn't the first person to articulate the golden rule. The Ten Commandments aren't brand new that God made up at that point. They're everywhere. So, of course, we don't need religion because everybody knows this is right. And in my opinion, he just proved <laughs> this is why we need religion, is God has written this on your heart. Of course it's wrong to murder babies. What, what a ridiculous question. Why is it? Because we know it's wrong to murder babies because the law is written on our heart. So this is what the, the, um, the two midwives are operating on, is this internal conviction that I fear God. I fear Yahweh. I know he's a living and a, and a real God, and I don't want to violate what he knows to be right and wrong. And so I am not going to obey Pharaoh. This was the first act of civil disobedience. They have been given a, an order by the king of the world. The Pharaoh runs the world at this point. You will do this. And they look him in the face and they, they just basically ignore him. They say, I'm not going to do it. So they disobey Pharaoh. They refuse to kill these children. So this is the vanity of when you're the king of the world, vanity just goes part of the job description, right? Listen to Pharaoh. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let male children live. Why have you done this? Have they done anything? Actually, no. What they did do was not what they were supposed to do. So he should say, why didn't you listen to me? But instead, why have you done this and let male children live? Why on earth would, why, I can't conceive of anybody disobeying me. I am the king of the world. That's, that's the vanity that goes with being the king of the world. So somehow he's found out his, his horrible plan is not working. These children are being born and they're not dying. The mortality rate, infant mortality rate, has not gone up um, amongst the Hebrews. By the way, it would not be suspicious if Hebrew children died in birth. The, the rate of infant mortality throughout human history has been appalling. So it wouldn't be a terrible surprise if these poor children died. The, the midwives might be able to get away with it for a while. Uh, but they don't. They, they tell Pharaoh no. So Pharaoh calls men, why have you done this? Why have you disobeyed my magnificence? And so they looked Pharaoh in the face and they went, well, because you know, God said murder is wrong and so we're not going to do it. They didn't, did they? They tell him a story. They said, you know, these Hebrew women, they're not like you Egyptians. They're pretty robust. When it's time to have a baby, they just pop them right out. You know, you, lady, you Egyptians might rest for a while, but not, not these folks. They, they, they have babies too quick. When we get there, they're already born. So I don't think Pharaoh buys it because, answer this question, if Hebrew women have babies like that, then what is the point of, have, of even having a job title called midwife? Are you going to come in afterwards and clean the house while they're, they're nursing the baby or something? I mean, there's no point. If, if that's true of Hebrew women, there's no point in having a midwife. And, and you get a hint that that's not the case because Rachel when she was giving birth to Benjamin. She was laboring hard and it was difficult and she had a hard labor. So it's not like this is just a genetic trait. They lied to Pharaoh. They looked him in the face and they lied to him because the previous verse says they didn't do what Pharaoh told them to do. They didn't kill the babies. It wasn't that they got there after the babies was born, were born. They lied. This is, like I said, the first act of civil disobedience. We're not going to do what, we tell, what you tell us to do 
nor are we going to tell you the truth at this point. Why? Because if they had, let's, let's assume the second case for these, these two midwives. They're the, the um, head nurses. They're, they're leading a group of midwives. If they had told Pharaoh the truth, he would have executed them and found two midwives who would do the job. And what would be the result of that? Now, Hebrew, or, uh, Pharaoh's horrible plan gets carried out. So these women are in this very difficult situation. If we obey, we're murdering. If we disobey, then somebody else, we get murdered and somebody else is going to take over. So what they do is they deceive Pharaoh. It, it ain't, this plan won't work, boss. It doesn't work that way with these Hebrew women. So if you remember last week, we talked about how do you interpret the book of Exodus? And I said, you know, the first step is try to get into their situation and understand how they would have understood this but that's kind of impossible because I'm not a Bronze Age Middle Easterner, and so I can only go so far with this. But we should try to kind of angle that way. When I'm looking at this, I don't believe that what Moses is talking about here is the question, is it right to lie? I don't think that was what is in his, his sights at this point. I think what he's, what he's trying to communicate to the Hebrews is, this is your God protecting you even in this horrible situation. But it does raise for us the question, is it ever okay to lie? Because that's what they did. And what it says immediately after them, telling the Pharaoh a lie, the very next sentence is, so God dealt well with midwives. So is that saying, or is it even implying it's a, that God blessed them for lying? It's a huge question, and I want to tell you, it's pretty murky. murky. Um, there is an approach that says lying is always a sin. You should never lie. And had they just told the tr truth here, God would have taken care of it. Um, and so that's one approach, and it's scriptural because God has an awful lot to say about lying. Proverbs says he hates lying lips. The Ten Commandments says don't bear uh, false witness against your brother. Jesus said you are of your father the devil who is a liar from the beginning. So we can't look at this and go, well, lying's not a sin. Lying is a sin. But what we're at here is this challenge, these pull of two right things. What should we do in this situation? If we tell the truth, we're going to get executed, murder happens, and then more people come in and take over, and they're just going to continue to kill the midwives. So how can we do this? How can we work on this? So what they do is they told a lie. Now, does that mean that God, turn around and bless them, does that mean God just winked at the sin and went, ah, oh, it's okay. I'm with you. I get it. That's, that's highly unlikely. If it's a sin, it's a sin. What is possible here? There's one approach to this that says that it's possible that it was okay or appropriate in this instance to lie. Because had they not lied, worse would have happened. So if we kind of take a quick survey of some other instances through the Bible where somebody lied and was praised by God, the first one that comes to mind is Rahab. In Joshua chapter 2, Joshua leads Israel back into the promised land. They come to the first place that they're going to go, which is uh, Jericho. He sends some spies into Jericho to say, what are we facing here? What, what are we going to be up against? And the people of the city find out, and so they hide in the house of a harlot. A prostitute hides them. And what she does is she takes them in, and she puts them up on the roof, and then covers them in flax that's being dried on the roof. So when the people from the city come in and go, hey, there's some Hebrew spies, have you seen them? What she doesn't say is, well, yes, they're on the roof under some flax. That would be the truth. What she tells them is, oh, yeah, hey, I saw them. They're heading out the gate. I don't know where they're going, but if you run, you can catch them. 
and then she lets the spies go. And what happens from that, the results of that are the spies get away, Jericho falls, her and her family are saved. Not only that, but she then marries into Israel. She becomes one of the Israelites, has a child who um, has a child named Boaz, who has a child named Jesse, who has a child named David, who has a child named Jesus Christ. So she is part of the, the covenant family. And in Hebrews, she winds up in the Hall of Fame. She is praised for, for being what she was, for doing what she did. Now, listen to what it says. Hebrews beginning in, uh, 11, beginning in verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been circled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies, not because she lied because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. When the spies came in and they needed some place to hide, she hid them. So this is what I mean, this is murky. She's not praised for lying, though lying is part of what she did in giving the, the spies a friendly welcome. As a matter of fact, if we're talking about lying just as deception, consider the idea that she brought the, he, the Hebrew spies in and hid them so that nobody could see them. She was portraying to the rest of the city, there is no Hebrew spy here, they're, they're hidden. The first thing that she did was an act of deception, though it wasn't a lie. So it gets really murky on this. There, there's, there's a hard time coming up with a solid answer of, is it always wrong to lie? Um, I'm going through 1 Samuel right now. David lies a lot. He, he goes to Saul. Saul hires him, wants him to play a harp and be nice to him. Saul tries to pin him to the wall with a spear a couple of times. David goes to his, uh, Saul's son, Jonathan, and says, hey, your father hates my guts. I'm not going to the, the new moon feast with him today. Tell him that I had to go home because we had something going on, but I'm not going to be there. And Jonathan says, hey, you know what? My dad loves you. He thinks you're great. I'll check it out. And if he really is mad at you, I'll send a word and you can just escape and, and get away. And so he gets there and Jonathan says, yeah, David had to go to this thing. He lied. Saul tries to pin Jonathan to the wall. So the word gets back to David. David takes off. He gets to Abimelech. He gets to where the, the tabernacle is. And he goes and he says, have you got any food for me and my men? There's no mention of any men. None. So he eats the forbidden bread and he takes Goliath's swords and he charges off. The only thing that God condemns David for, this is not small, is adultery, murder, and taking an unlicensed or an unwarranted census. Never for lying. Now, does that mean that lying was not a sin? No. You see what I mean? It's very complicated. It gets very difficult. Had David told the truth and shown up, he might have been killed. Now, that's not the full biblical picture of liars, is it? We just went through the book of Acts. We met two liars who got in real big trouble, Ananias and Sapphira. What did they do? They sold some property, brought some money, dropped it at the apostles' feet, went, we gave it all, man. And God killed both of them for lying. Because Peter says, you're not lying to man, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. So what's the difference here? Why didn't God zap the two midwives? Why didn't he zap Rahab? Why did he zap Ananias and Sapphira? Well, consider why they lied. The midwives lied to prevent evil from happening. They said, we're going to tell him a non-truth to prevent more evil from happening. Rahab hid the spies 
to prevent more evil from happening, the people of the cities would have captured him and killed him. Ananias and Sapphira lied to make themselves look better. They lied to, to make themselves appear to be more sacrificial and more holy. So there is a way that lying is, is obviously every single time wrong. So kids, if you lie to your parents, you're covering up sin, and it's not like your parents are going to kill you, so don't lie to your parents. In real life, it gets a little bit more difficult. And, and the classic example is the Nazis storming into a house and saying, are there any Jews here? That would be horrendous if somebody, if, if Corey Ten Boom went, oh yeah, they're under the floorboards. That would have been horrible. She would have got killed, they would have got killed. The, the whole point in hiding the Jews would have been undone. So let's reel this back in because this isn't Moses' point. <laughs> but I think it raises a good question is how do we decide when to tell the truth? I think there's a concept that, that kind of hits at it. Is the person you're speaking to entitled to the truth? What will they do with the truth? Jesus himself was questioned by the, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and Pilate, and said, are you the Messiah? Tell us the truth. And he evaded the question. He didn't lie, but he wouldn't give them the truth. Why? Because they wouldn't believe anyway. So these were people that were not entitled to the truth. I'll tell you what, I'll tell you if I'm the Messiah, if you tell me about John the Baptist, was his baptism from God or not? No, then I'm not telling you. And that was a perfectly right and good thing to do. They were not entitled to the truth because they wouldn't handle it rightly. What they most likely would have done had he said, yes, of course I'm the Messiah, is they would have went, blasphemy, arrest him, have him executed. Oh, that's what they did. So he was right in not telling them, not giving him an answer. Um, it, would there have been another way that the midwives could have phrased this so it wouldn't have been an out and out lie? I don't know, I wasn't there. One of my favorite examples was uh, Athanasius. Athanasius was a saint in the, um, in the third or fourth century. He was at the Council of Nicaea. He argued against the Arians who said that there was a time when the sun didn't exist. He swung the empire away from Arianism. They condemned Arianism. And then a few years later, it swung back. And so Arius was, uh, I mean, not Arius, um, Athanasius was against the world. The phrase is Athanasius contramundum. Athanasius against everybody. He was the last standing guy who was saying, no, there was never a time when the sun wasn't. And so he's, he gets chased out of the city. And he hops in a boat, and he's rowing across a big lake. And Roman soldiers in a boat are roaming after him. And he keeps looking over his shoulder, and they're catching up, and they're catching up. And they get close to him, and they said, have you seen Athanasius? And he goes, you've almost caught him. Keep going. He didn't lie. <laughs> he told the truth. I would say he deceived them because they kept going and he went the other direction. So maybe there was a way to do it. But the problem is, it's hard. It isn't always easy to determine when do I tell the truth and when do I make a little bit of a deception and when do I have to tell an out and out lie. Um, that's why we have to have wisdom is because sometimes we have to make tough calls. And wisdom, as I've said before, is not yes and no, right and wrong, do this, don't do that. Wisdom is... How do I make the right decision in this circumstance? How do I make the best call in the circumstance that I'm in? So the midwives, the best call that they could make at that point was to tell Pharaoh, oh, hey, these Hebrews, man, they just crank out these babies. And so his plan fails. What happens to the Hebrew uh, midwives? God dealt with them, dealt well with them 
And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. So what was Pharaoh trying to do? Reduce the population. The midwives refused to participate in that pogrom. And what does God do? Uses them as part of the blessing. You have children too. You have children and you have children and you have children. And you midwives, you go have children too. Everybody's having children. It was part of the blessing. They're brought in and they're incorporated in the blessing. So apparently, and again, frustrating little information in this, apparently Pharaoh quickly abandoned this, this idea. Um, maybe the lie convinced him, okay, this isn't going to work. Let's try something else. What he tries gets worse. He goes from originally slavery and oppression. That'll keep their numbers down. Well, that doesn't work. Let's try covert assassination. Let's try covert infanticide. Well, that's not going to work. All right, out and out open infanticide. The next thing that he says is he tells his people, um, if you have children, throw them in the Nile. If you see Hebrew children, throw them in. And he tells his people. The Hebrews were not his people. So apparently what he's telling uh, the, uh, the um, Egyptians is, if you see a Hebrew baby, pick them up and chuck them in the Nile. Isn't that horrible? It's just terrible. But before we get to that, let, we got to tell a little bit of story. So that's, that's the... the, the um, the plan. That's what he's going to try to do is, is throw these uh, Hebrew babies in the Nile and kill them. But that's not where Moses begins. He, he sets that up. He says, this is what the plan was. And then he says, now a man from the house of Levi went and took as a wife a Levite woman. And the woman conceived and bore a son. In the midst of this, in the midst of this evil of slavery, of oppression, of attempted infanticide, even in the middle of that, a man takes a wife, and she conceives and bears a baby. So I don't know if you've ever heard people say today, oh, I don't know if I can bring a child into this world. It's such a horrible place. What if that child is the Moses that's going to undo some of that horribleness, and you decide not to bring a child in? That's one of the things that humans have is we have hope. We can hope for something better. And we can hope for that in our children. We look to our children and say, I hope that you have a better life than I did. And, and there might be more. So this man takes a wife and they have a baby. In the midst of this oppression, in the midst of this pogrom to throw children into the Nile, she has a baby anyway. And when she saw the child, she gives birth and she looks at him and he is a fine child. There's something beautiful about this child. All babies are beautiful. But there's something about this one that they go, this baby's really pretty. And so she hides him for three months. Now, for three months, she might be able to get away with it. Keep the, the baby at your breast, and if he wakes up and starts making a noise, you could breastfeed him really quick or something like that. After a while, the kid gets mobile and bigger and louder. And, and so after three months, they just realize this isn't going to work. We can't hide him. Uh, this, this just isn't going to cut it. And so what it says is that she took him. And she made a basket from her, for him from, the ESV says bulrushes. It was probably reeds from the, the uh, Nile. And she daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and then she put the baby in it. So what's going on is she weaves a basket, a, a wicker basket. She seals it with tar so that it can float, and she puts her baby in it. Now, there's something going on here that, that we don't really quite catch in the English. It's not the word for basket. The word that, that Moses uses there is teva, which is the word for ark. 
And I don't mean Ark of the Covenant. That's a different word. Teva is a very seldom used word in the Bible. And it's only been used really in two places, which is the story of Noah and here. So what is Moses saying? Moses, remember, he's just written the book of Genesis, and now he's carrying on with the story. And in the book of Genesis, he talks about the ark, and then he says, and I was placed in an ark. Now, why was Noah in an ark? Because God decided he was going to wipe out the world. He said, I am sorry I made man. They're horrible. I'm going to wipe them all out. But he found one righteous person on all the earth, and that was Noah. And so he put him in an ark. So is Moses here saying, I was the only righteous person in all of Israel? How is he any more righteous than another three-month-old? I don't think that's where he's bringing the story of the ark in. Do you know where I think it comes from? Is a little fact that he drops in the book of Genesis and just leaves kind of hanging and we don't really pay much attention to it. Not in chapter 6 where the ark appears, but the chapter before in the genealogy. So in chapter 5, Moses gave us this genealogy from Adam to Noah. And this is how it ends. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son, and he called his son's name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from our painful toil of our hands. What is Moses going to do for the Israelites? He is going to bring them relief from the work and the painful toil of their hands. That's what he's going to do. So I think that's why he drops an interpretation of Noah's name. Does, does that idea of bringing um, uh, rest from the cursed ground, does that have anything to do with Noah? What happens with Noah is everybody dies. It wasn't really, it was rest, <laughs> I guess, in one sense. But what Noah did was Noah brought salvation for humanity, but only in eight people. So the name seemed, it always struck me as odd that it was dropped there. I think this might be why Moses interpreted the name for us. Is he saying, just like Moses was put in an ark, I was put in an ark. My role, Israel, don't forget what my role is. My role is to bring you rest from your labors. You have been sorely oppressed by the Egyptians, and I've been put in an ark so that I can bring you rest. That's, that's who I am. So I think that's why he tells the story the way he tells it. And by the way, his narrative pace slows down here, too. He gives us some more details. So here's what happens. She puts him in this ark and floats it down the River Nile. No, she doesn't. She goes over and places it in some reeds beside the Nile. And then she takes his older sister, Miriam, and she says, now you watch and make sure that's okay. And don't you know it? Just so happened the daughter of Pharaoh just happened to come by. Wow. I get the feeling that everybody in this portion of the story is winking at each other going, yeah, what a coincidence. I think, I think his mom knew exactly what she was doing. Float that thing over there, put it in the reeds. Miriam, you keep an eye on it and see what happens. Let's see what the, uh, the princess of Egypt will do for me. So she comes out to, to do her daily bathing. She comes out to, to wash herself in the Nile. And as they're walking along, she hears the crying in the, in the ark. She hears the crying in the basket and sends one of her women over. And they draw the basket out. And when the princess opens it and looks, like I said, there's something about this kid. He was just like super charming. Maybe he had this like really great smile, you know, born with teeth. And he had this, you know, bling kind of smile or something. There is something attractive about this baby. Pharaoh's daughter looks and she falls in love with him. And she says, well, she takes pity on him. And the first thing that she says is, this is one of the Hebrew children. How do you think she knew that? Well, he was a male, more than eight days old. So it was pretty obvious. He was a Hebrew child. The, the uh, the Egyptians didn't do that until much later. 
So once she has the baby and she, she recognizes him as, as a Hebrew, um, she takes him and she's having pity. And then Moses's sister Miriam comes up and says, um, hey, you know, I happen to know a Hebrew lady that could nurse him for you. Wink, wink. Isn't that something? And so uh, if you want, I'll go get her and she can nurse. And so the uh, Pharaoh's daughter, I'm pretty sure is like, oh, okay, let's go do that. <laughs> go get that Hebrew lady who can nurse because it's possible to, to express milk, for a woman to express milk without having had a baby, but it takes a while and it's painful. And if you're a mother who's nursing and you don't express milk, that's painful. So it's like one of this, wow, what a wild coincidence. I think they all knew what was going on. And so she gives the baby to his mother and says, you take care of him, you raise him and nurse him for me, and I'll pay you your wages. I will take care of you. Isn't that something? She's going to pay Moses' mom to be Moses' mom for a period of time anyway. And so what's going on here is right in the midst. It gets now much more personal. Now it's not Hebrew midwives blowing off Pharaoh. Now it's his daughter. His very own daughter is going to stand there and, and look him right in the face and go, yeah, hey, found a Hebrew. I'm keeping him. <laughs> we're, we're not going to let him go. So this idea of throwing the child in the Nile, doesn't that sound barbaric? Doesn't that sound horrible? I want you to know that this is a, a practice called exposing children. And humanity has a long, horrible history with exposing children. We have been doing it for a very long time. If, if somebody had a child and they didn't want the child, they just put the child out and let nature take its course. Prostitutes, temple prostitutes, their business is not having babies. So if a temple prostitute got pregnant, they would just expose their baby, put them out, let them go, see what happens. It, it, it happened regularly. Rome was probably at its peak, was, was doing this on a re hugely regular basis because they didn't have any sexual ethic and they didn't really have abortion. They, they could do an abortion, but it almost always resulted in the death of the mother. So abortion wasn't really a big thing. So what they do is they have a baby and go, yeah, I don't want it. Put it out on the curb. Ignore it. Let it die. The change, especially in the West, came because what Christians did. Christians in Rome looked and said, this is horrible. And so they went around and they gathered up these exposed children and they raised them as their own. That, that's, a, that's a documented thing. The Romans didn't know what to do with that. Why on earth would you do that? Why would you do such a thing? And the reason they would do that is because the Christians, we Christians have this doctrine of the Imago Dei. All human beings are created in God's image. And therefore, all are worthy of dignity. All are worthy of care. It doesn't matter how little, how big they are. And so that's how the church responded. And that ethic changed the Western world. That's why we have hospitals. That's why we had these, these people to take care of babies. That's why we have orphanages. It's largely in the West due to the Christian influence. But at the time that Moses was born, infant mortality rates were huge and exposing of children was no big deal. So when the Pharaoh's daughter sees a baby in a basket and takes pity on him, this is not because it is such a rare event that a child would be thrown in the Nile. It is because there is something special going on. God is working his plan. He is working his promise right smack in the middle of the, um, the, the Egyptian power structure. 
So whereas Pharaoh tried oppression, whereas he tried um, uh, infanticide, now he tries to expose children. All of that fails, and God is standing right in the middle of it before all earthly powers saying, no, I'm going to carry out my purpose. He didn't, he didn't take the Hebrews at this point and say, now let's go to the promised land where I can keep you safe, and then I'll make you a big, powerful nation, and everything will be okay. What he did is he stepped right into the middle of it in the face of oppression, in the face of slavery, in the face of brutality, and said, no, I promised you that I would deliver you, and here I am to do it. His last maneuver to expose the children winds up taking the deliverer, the one who would absolutely undo Pharaoh's power, and puts him right in Pharaoh's own household. This is God working right in the midst, right in the face of earthly powers. He's not going to slow down. He's not going to be intimidated by, by Pharaoh because he's the most powerful person in the, in the world. So if you've ever seen the 1998 um, um, DreamWorks cartoon, Prince of Egypt, I want to say right here, it's totally wrong. It just really blows it because Pharaoh or uh, Moses has no idea who he is. Somebody sneaks in and tells him, you're a Hebrew. And he's like, what? Why was I never told? I, now my entire life was a lie. That's absolutely not what, ha not what happened here. Pharaoh's daughter looks and goes, oh, that's a Hebrew. He's raised in his mother's household. Now, if she raised him until he was weaned, weaning could happen anywhere between three and six years old. This kid was raised in a Hebrew household. He knew who he was. As a matter of fact, when we get to the, the later part where he, next week I think it's going to be, he goes to see how his people are doing. He knows who he is. So as great as the songs were in Prince of Egypt, the story's not exactly right. He, kn he knows that he's a Hebrew. He knows what he's doing. So God doesn't whisk him out and go, let me go hide this child. God puts him in Pharaoh's household. That's, that's the safest place for him right? Pharaoh who's trying to kill him. This is God demonstrating his authority over everything. And, and you know what? This is not stranded to the Exodus. This happens everywhere. This is how God has always operated. In the face of all worth, earthly powers, God rules over his people and he cares for his people. He carries out his covenant. So the church was oppressed and persecuted in Rome. Rome was terrible. Rome did horrible things. They tied Christians to, spot, to a, a big piece of wood, dabbed them in tar, and lit them on fire as, as uh, torches in gardens. Rome took Christians and threw them to lions and said, go fight a lion. They did all kinds of horrible things to Christians. And you know what happened to the church? It grew and multiplied and spread across the earth. The church was oppressed. Communist Russia and communist China tried to wipe out the church, tried to eradicate it, and they never succeeded. As horrible as they were, the church never departed. As a matter of fact, in China, when they had the big purging where they, they got rid of everybody, they tried to eliminate churches, and underground churches multiplied and grew. In, in Eastern, um, Eastern Europe, the underground church flourished during the communist rule. North Korea oppresses the church, and I just heard a story of a woman who escaped from North Korea, became a believer, escaped from North Korea, and is, and is trying to get the word back to North Korea. North Korea can't stop the gospel. Muslim nations today have outlawed the gospel, and yet the gospel goes in. The gospel still shows up. As a matter of fact, with Muslims, God just kind of goes, yeah, that's a, good, that's a good plan. Here's a dream. Who's, who's the Messiah? 
Who is this Jesus that you guys are opposed to? God doesn't have to worry about these kind of things. He, he isn't stopped by international boundaries or ruling oppressing uh, people that are trying to shut down the church. He's done it throughout history. He started here in the book of Exodus. We see him doing it. And he's continuing to do the same thing today. He's continuing to say, no, I'm not going to just vaporize my church out of this. You get saved and you disappear. I'm going to pers- I'll be with you. We'll lead you through this. We will go through this together and I will deliver you. Why is that? That's because God in the Old Testament was never subject to those earthly powers. They thought that their power and authority came from their gods. God said, no, I created the the mountain that your God's supposed to be the God of. I created the wood that you carved your God from. I'm over all of this. And then in the New Testament, when God comes and dwells with us, he defeated all earthly powers. He he could look Pharaoh right in the face, or I mean, Uh, Pontius Pilate right in the face and say, you would have no authority were it not for my God or for my Father. I could call down right now legions of angels if I wanted to. You have no authority over me. And in his death and resurrection, he's defeated all of this authority structure. Listen to Colossians chapter 2. Paul says, and you, when you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. What was the result of that? He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. The immediate context, the rulers and authorities are probably spiritual forces, but the reality is when we get to the end of the book, it's human forces too. What we hear about in the new heavens and the new earth is that the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. That the kings will bring their glory into the new Jerusalem. They will bring their best to the new Jerusalem because they're subjected. So this is what our God is doing. This is what the story of how God works with his people. Don't forget the the outline of Exodus is going to be God delivers us. God rules over us and God dwells with us. That's the flow, that's the idea. It's God and us is is in the outline. And here's where he's working to deliver us. And by the way, his working to deliver us includes his rule over us and his dwelling with us because he's right there with his people. It's just which part gets put in the front, which gets the emphasis at any given time. So this is where our God is going. Now what we're gonna come next is we're gonna get more into Moses's life and our pace is gonna slow down. We'll get a little bit more detail. Um, But for right now, Moses has set us up for what comes next. Because what comes next? The big showdown. Pharaoh versus Yahweh. And we've already got a taste here of who's going to win. Because who's won so far? God is (laughs) 3-0. He's going to keep going. It it ain't going to get any worse. Uh, But we've already been set up for that. So when we get to the rest of the book of Exodus, we know where this is going to go. He's already given us just a taste in this little section. So let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for dwelling with us, for Jesus Christ coming and and taking on a reasonable human nature and uh, becoming one of us, dwelling in the midst of us, being the rule over us, delivering us from our sins and and the kingdom of darkness. And Lord, thank you for picturing this, um, not in some abstract story carved on a wall someplace, but etching it in the, in the, the fabric of history. You have been telling this story so that we can have assurance now that this is what's happening. So Lord, would you build our faith and our confidence in you as you dwell amongst us? And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.